This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And indeed, it is Friday, well, Friday, here on WABC Talk Radio 77. If you'd like to be part of today's program, all you have to do, pick up your telephone, join us, 800-848-WABC is the number to call, 800-848-9222. And, as always, there is a lot in the news, we will cover as much of it as we can, and we will remind you that right after this show today comes... Catch at night, and tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., start your, set the alarm clock if you'd like. And, well, I mean, it's Saturday, but yeah, you can if you want, or if you're an early riser, you know, do an appointment on your on your smartphone. James Golden, tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., our Saturday morning radio extravaganza, starting these days, an hour earlier at 7 a.m. until 10. And let us get started with this story from Mediaite. The Border Patrol agents, you will remember this, in a viral, with viral whipping images, have been cleared. You wouldn't know that from most, from most mainstream reports. Now, these were the agents that were at the center of the infamous whipping photos that caused outrage even in the White House in September. Border agents tried to control the surge, and it was a hard surge down underneath the bridge, Laredo, Texas, were accused of whipping, whipping migrants. And, of course, the left went completely nuts. They went back, oh, these are slavery images, how horrible these border agents, white men on horses whipping Poor blacks, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't true. Many outlets did not cover the fact that an investigation has led to these Border Patrol agents being cleared. Of course they were cleared. They were actually handling split reins for their horses. They were not whipping migrants. You won't find it again on many of your mainstream outlets. Neither has President Joe Biden issued an apology for declaring these men guilty and saying that they were going to pay for their, for their crimes. The Department of Homeland Security Director, Alejandro Mayorkas, also was outraged. And now, crickets. 
none of them will say a word that these agents who serve the United States of America with distinction have been cleared. And this was all a made-up media frenzy. Oh, we're going to go to we're going to get to Elton Musk and Twitter. But first, let us secondly, I'd rather let us turn to the MTA here in the city. New York Post today. MTA fails to give information on security camera woes in the wake of Brooklyn subway shooting. The MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, has refused to provide an accounting of New York City subway surveillance system Thursday, days after malfunctioning cameras in two subway stops affected by the Brooklyn mass shooting hindered the early stages of the citywide manhunt. So we had cameras that weren't working, surveillance videos that were unable to be obtained, and of course, outrage. How dare the MTA have cameras not working? How dare they? And now City Council Speaker Adrian Adams and other council members are calling for a full audit of the MTA surveillance system. Okay, fair enough. I'd like to see a full audit of New York City's City Council. A full audit of all of the criminals that have been let out on the streets to roam the streets after they're not getting after they're getting bailed out because of bail reform. How about an audit about that? How about some accountability from the City Council responsible for in some cases the deaths of New Yorkers? by these recidivist criminals. They're not asking for any accountability there. Of course not. But they can point their fingers at the MTA. How about a little finger pointing at New York City Council about these liberals who are in the midst of a crime surge in New York and refuse to say we were wrong. We should have never implemented these silly bail reform measures No, they won't say a word about that, but they'll jump all over the MCA for broken cameras. Really? New York City Council has placed more New Yorkers in danger than this hateful person that went on a shooting spree. And they are refusing to provide an accounting to New York City residents over their failures, their repeated failures, because it's not just the crime. If you look at the failing schools, if you look at so many other aspects of New York City governance, they are complete failures. But they don't give an accounting of their own failure. They point their finger elsewhere. Now, of course, today being Friday, we will hear from Her Majesty. I cannot wait. Her Majesty Princess Diana. Princess Diana and I are going to discuss the matters of policy. And one of them will concern the Democrats, I'm sure. There is an article in Newsweek from Deval Patrick. Do you remember him? Massachusetts Gov, Deval Patrick, the original Obama. He was Obama before Obama. The media used to fawn all over this guy. 
Well, today, Deval has, Deval Patrick has an article in Newsweek. Democrats, stop whining about polls. We have the record to win in November. <laughs> yeah, 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 he has, he has the right. You want to hear some of the record to win the Democrats can run on? Why, according to Deval Patrick, Democrats have helped create more jobs at a faster rate and a higher pay than any other time in recent decades. Um, Deval, let's tell the truth about that. Democrats closed down cities across the United States of America. They ruined the economy. And now that COVID is easing up, people are getting back to work. has nothing to do with Democrats creating jobs. It has to do with how many people Democrats threw out of work to begin with. Mr. Patrick, Democrats have helped create, have helped vaccinate hundreds of millions of Americans against COVID-19, and infection rates are plummeting. He thinks this is what Democrats want. Democrats, Trump-hating Democrats, didn't believe a vaccine was possible, and they did everything they could to badmouth Donald Trump when he put together Operation Warp Speed. Remember that? So before you run on that, let's run on your history, Mr. Deval Patrick, your real history, instead of this fantasy. And then comes this. After decades of bipartisan shortcomings, Democrats have delivered historic investment in universal broadband, rail expansion, road and bridge repair, and all the careers to be made and the futures to be built from these accomplishments yet to come. Mr. Patrick, let us tell the truth about that. Democrats have passed, with the help of 11 rhino Republicans, one of the biggest welfare programs that America has ever seen. You are not spending most of the money in your infrastructure plan on infrastructure. It goes to social welfare programs. As for universal broadband, really? You guys have been touting that for decades. Remember the Gore tax? We do. That was supposed to solve this problem. Rail expansion? Right. Trains to nowhere. Like in California, infamously over budget. Now, by the way, I am not, believe it or not, all opposed to money being spent to upgrade our rail system. One day, I'll maybe I'll talk about that. But for this guy to take credit, this it wasn't an investment. It is typical tax and spend Democrats. You people in the Democrat Party cannot, with the help of rhinos, stop spending money that America does not have. We are further in debt than we have ever been in any time in our history because of this profligate spending that you refuse to stop. So get real, Mr. Patrick, you have no record to run on. When we get back, the one, the only, our beautiful, wonderful Princess Di will join us. Don't go anywhere. Entertaining and informative. James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurdly, is on the air. It's time for Radio Royalty with James Golden and America's Princess of Policy, Princess Di. 
That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We all wait every week for her most intellectualness, her loveliness, her incredible ness, and her royal ness to appear so that we may bow down in reverence to that amazing. Yes, why not? So it is with great pleasure, my honor, my high honor to introduce. Our one and only, our beloved Princess of Policy, <laughs> the one, the only, Princess Diana. Welcome, Princess Di. How are you? <laughs> I am so happy to hear your voice, Sir James, the Knight of the Golden Order, the Duke of A.K.A. Bo Snurdly. It's so wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you so much. We We have a lot to discuss. The uh, okay. uh, the Amazon Prime uh, uh, Washington Post, <laughs> which reminds me, this this Elon mm. Musk thing has got me in stitches. Okay, and then Max Boot of the Amazon Prime Washington Post was writing one of these snarky columns. Oh oh oh! If 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 Elon Musk gets a hold of Twitter, oh what will become of us? Oh, we are all for ruined. Oh, please don't let it happen. And somebody actually. Go ahead. We need more censorship. That's what. Right. We need more censorship so we can have democracy. And somebody wrote back and said, don't you get your paycheck from Jeff Bezos? <laughs> yeah, so. they don't make the parallel on the left, but they are right now, you know, Elon Musk is uh, the the dark night of evil for the left, whereas <laughs> not that long ago, he was a hero because of his electric vehicles and environmental concerns, and they all loved him on the left. He was going to take them all to Mars and, and so they could escape this horrible planet. So they changed on a dime, as they typically do, and now he is getting the cancel treatment, which is a very amusing because don't you feel a disturbance in the force? I totally feel a change of energy. One of the things is this Elon Musk purchase move for Twitter. And the other thing was the Jennifer Rubin column that you referenced, where she talked about the sense of foreboding bordering on panic among all the leftist progressive activists with regards to the Supreme Court. So there is this sense that the left is losing power. And I think correctly, even though nothing has actually happened politically yet, in anticipation, there are, are a couple of things that is, are going to change their ability to control, which, of course, is what they live for. There is a disturbance in the force. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? <laughs> I <Yes>. feel it. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Now, back to the Amazon Prime Washington Post. There's been a study... Yeah. And, and liberals love studies. And for a change, <laughs> I love studies, too. Because this study looked at what's going on inside Jeff Bezos' Amazon Prime Whole Foods Washington Post. And it ain't pretty. Why don't you tell us, Your Majesty, about oh. that, sto- that study? This is why the news is mostly fun these days. This is a study by the 
workers union at the Washington Post. It's called the Washington Post Newspaper Guild. And the Newspaper Guild is studying the pay of the newspaper people on staff. And they this is not the first time they've done this. But they always find gaps between men and women, between people of color and white people in the salaries. And so they have come out with another one and which they found the median salary for women who work in the newsroom is 13 percent lower than for men who work in the in the newsroom. So this obviously proves that the Washington Post is a terribly hostile environment. And, you know, it is not unusual for organizations or cities or states run by the left to have the worst record for all of the things that they say they care about. And so, you know, this is an instapundent question he asks all the time. Why are leftist organizations such cesspits of bigotry and hate? And clearly the Washington Post is a cesspit of bigotry and hate in their own newsroom because they do not treat people equally, which is what they claim to want to do. According to a 2019 study, women of color received $30,000 a year less than white men, a gap of 35%. So this is a long-term problem at the Washington Post, and I do think the Justice Department needs to investigate. Democracy dies in darkness. Equity (laughs) dies at the Amazon Prime Washington Post. Yes. Yes. Now they don't even know how to fix it. And that that is the other thing. The union said we well the data proves that this is true, that perpetuates inequalities, but the data doesn't uh tell us why or what we can do to fix it. So I was gonna ask you, what do you think they should do to fix it? I think that they should give the black people at the Washington Post reparations, number one. And then I think they ought to extend the reparations to women and say, look, y'all have been in the press class here. We have systematic racism, institutional racism at the Washington Post and institutional Me Too sexism at the Washington Post. And the only way for us to fix it is with money. And here's some money. We're going to load you up with money and we're going to finally make you equal to white men who we're trying to fire anyway. So, I mean, hey. And then you can go spend that money, and you can spend that money at Whole Foods. We're going to give you discount, and you can spend it on Amazon, and we'll give you a better discount. Boom. Problem solved. That is absolutely perfect. Here, here. Now, the turtle. The turtle, Mitch McConnell, and we are using the nickname given to Mitch McConnell by Rush Limbaugh. May God bless and rest his soul. The turtle, yes. the turtle says that the GOP could well screw up these midterm elections if, if, if we don't get the right people to run. What is the turtle talking about? You know, this is actually a long running feud between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. And he there was a piece in February in The New York Times and another piece in The Washington Post detailing what the turtle was doing to stop 
all of the candidates that Trump wanted to uh, endorse in the primaries. So Mitch McConnell is claiming that he wants to make sure no goofballs get elected. That has been what he calls conservatives in general and the Tea Party people. He's been, you know, really warring against conservative candidates in Republican primaries for many, many years. And he's succeeded in keeping conservatives out of his precious Senate. Now, new for him is he is losing this battle to Trump, who has been working very, very hard to study and and endorse candidates in these races that he wants to have as MAGA candidates who are going to, because he saw that the Senate was a problem for him the first time. And if there's a second time that uh, that he's president, that he's going to need supporters in these um, old, old Republican establishment run organizations. And so this has been, as I said, a long duel between the two men that's been basically not noticed. And so far, uh, Mitch McConnell is losing a lot of uh, Trump candidates. Uh, One of the ones that's often mentioned is Herschel Walker, who Mitch McConnell wanted nothing to do with. But he is very popular. And so he reluctantly agreed to endorse him as well. So he is supporting them, but him, but not all of the rest of Trump's endorsed candidates. And interestingly enough, there are a lot of wars going on within the party on Trump endorsements. I mean, he endorsed uh, Oz, and that is very controversial. Oh, yeah, Dr. Oz. That is, yeah, that that one. Yes. Yep. There are a lot of people who are like, what is he thinking? And, you know, in many cases, there are arguments to be made against the, the people that Trump has chosen. But to me, let's look at the record he's got. You know, it's almost like 97 percent who have actually won after his endorsement. His endorsement has a lot of clout. And so he have, has a lot of people going down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring and to get his endorsement. And he picks and chooses. Now, I'm not saying I agree with all of them, but I do say that it has power and influence within the party, which is what Mitch McConnell is angry about. And I'll just leave you with this and get a quick reaction, and then we'll pick it up tomorrow morning, Princess Diane, on our Saturday morning radio extravaganza. There's an article in Politico today that I just saw right before the show started. McCarthy losing House GOP dealmakers as he eyes speakership. So already Politico is nervous because the rhinos are not running again. People like Fred Upton, the rhinos, the ones that used to stab Trump in the back. And so Politico's like, oh, the moderates are going to leave. This is going to be problematic when the Republicans, if the Republicans win the midterms. Yeah. What do you think? Is it going to be a problem or not? Well. I guess the princess, we've lost her line. So why don't we do this? Why don't we head over to a break, ladies and gentlemen, and we will be right back. James Golden, a.k.a. Thank you, Princess Di, WABC, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Entertaining and informative. James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snerdly, is on the air. 77 WABC. W. ABC Talk Radio 77 in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, uh, for the past few weeks, we have been focused a lot on matters of gender, uh, especially since the bill in Florida, the the parental notification bill, was signed into law and followed very quickly by Alabama deciding that they were going to uh, put a stop to what is called gender-affirming medical services for minors. And there have been several other states acting as well. I read an article in the Washington Post by a woman, Corinna Cohn, a software developer from Indianapolis. She's currently an officer in the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network. And I asked if she would join us. She is here now. Corinna, welcome. I appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you, James. I'm glad to be here. Now, your article starts off, you say when you were 19, you had surgery for sex reassignment, or what is now called gender affirmation surgery. You say the callow young man who was obsessed with transitioning to womanhood could not have imagined reaching middle age. You're middle age now. What is it that you want to share with people, not just in the Washington Post, but people in general that want to hear about your story? I think one of the things to understand is that when you're a teenager, even if you are above the legal age of majority, which is 18 most places, you are still undergoing a lot of adolescent identity formation. And just because you're legally able to do something doesn't mean that you necessarily have the maturity to be making really radical choices. I think that's probably the most salient thing that I wanted to share. Well, tell us what happened with you. You made those choices at 19. First of all, for, I don't, you know, as much as I've read about this, I don't know some real key things about gender reassignment. Is it a painful process? How long does the process take? And when you decided to do it, I mean, you decided to do it uh, some years ago, many years ago, before it is as popular as it is popular in quotes. Now, was it right. easy to find a doctors to help you? Tell us a little bit about what happened with you. The way that I was able to find my doctors, that's my endocrinologist who pre- prescribed the hormone replacement therapy and my surgeon. That was through a network of other trans people that I learned about on the internet when I was still in high school. And it was still pretty underground at that point. There was no Google, there's no search engine. So it was mostly word of mouth to learn about anybody who was accepting any patients for these types of uh, procedures. Was it painful? Was it painful? The surgery was painful. Yeah, it it took a while to recover from. And I I think that's probably consistent with most surgeries. But it took probably about a year before it was uh, healed up to the point where there wasn't any more um, 
healing that needed to be done. All right, you're closer to 50 now. What's your life like? Are you sorry you did it? Are you glad you did it? What has life been life, uh, life like for you in those intervening years? Well, some context to add to my decision is that at the age that I was really set on wanting to transition, it was we weren't even at the peak yet of the AIDS crisis. And I had a lot of fear about having um, any any sort of illness that would kill me <laughs> mm-hmm. because that's that's uh, unfortunately that was what was my context as a teenager is that um, AIDS was unfortunately killing a lot of people. And I know it's hard for teenagers today to understand just how severe that was, but that was really the environment that was present when I was that age. And as a matter of fact, a number of the gay friends that I had at that time did end up contracting HIV. And I feel like there's a a good likelihood that if I had not transitioned or if I had not had those types of anxieties about having um, intercourse with other same-sex at the time, that it's likely I would have had HIV also. So I don't see that regret is really the the go-to word for me because I can definitely see that given how my peers' lives progressed, that there were other risks that I likely uh, may have um, encountered. So I don't know regret's the best word, but I can definitely see that if I were alive at today at the age of 19 and that things like uh, HIV were mitigated against with things like PrEP, that maybe if I had had a little bit more time to explore who I was, that I wouldn't have gone to medicine or surgery in order to try to achieve my, my sense of being, if that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. You say as a teenager you were repelled by the thought of having biological children. Uh, but in your vision of the adult future, you imagined marrying a man, adopting a child. Years later, you said you were surprised by the pangs you felt as some of your friends and your younger sister started families of their own. That sounds like it was a difficult period for you. It was. And I think if I'm going to say so, uh, if we're, or if I can say so, I think it's actually uh, difficult and confusing for most people. Um, I don't think most people as teenagers really conceive themselves as becoming parents. And it's good that they, they don't, right? You should be learning about the world and figuring out about your identity. Um, as it happens, I thought that I was alone in that. And I thought that there was something that was strange or different about me. And it, it just didn't occur to me that the things that I was going through were more typical to just being a teenager. And so I, I tried to find a way to uh, make myself feel better, to ameliorate the sense of isolation and alienation that I felt. And it's just something that's common for teenagers, and I didn't really understand that at the time. You also say, and I want to read a, a paragraph that you I mean, I think your article was profound. 
I think for people that really want kind of a, a, a look at a perspective that is different, I, 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 your article blew my mind. It was profound. It is profound. You said surgery unshackled me from my body's urges, but the destruction of my gonads introduced a different type of bondage. From the day of my surgery, I became a medical patient and will remain one for the rest of my life. Can you explain that? Yes. Your body naturally produces the, if, if you're a healthy person, your body naturally produces the hormones that it needs and it regulates them according to what your needs are. But because I, as, as part of the surgery, can't produce the normal levels of hormones that I need anymore, I must have some form of external um, medication for my hormones. And because that's all regulated by my schedule, like consciously choosing when to um, take my medicine, I don't have, my body doesn't naturally regulate its own hormones at all. And so if, if, I'm, uh, if I need more, I don't get it. If I'm having too much, um, I can't really dial back. And that is, that is not the healthiest way for your body to handle its endocrine system. Now, you look at, see, you, 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 like all of us, are watching the news, and you're seeing more and more cases where these children, not even teenagers, are being given these, what they call the gender affirmation treatments. They're starting these puberty blockers even before they're in puberty, obviously, and they are beginning to transition as children, not even teenagers in some cases. You've been through this. What what do you think about that? And what would you say to the parents of those children and to the children based on your own experience? Well, I want to emphasize that I really started my transition when I was 18. And so it's a little bit harder for me to provide a perspective on a child who's transitioning at nine. But what I can say is that for the first 10 or so years after I transitioned, I felt like I had made a really good choice. I was a lot more open and a lot more social, and it was easier for me to, for the sort of personality that I have, it was easier for me to interact with people if they perceived me as being a member of the opposite sex. But by the time that I hit my 30s and now I'm in my 40s, it really started to create a lot of cognitive dissonance for me of moving through the world in a way that was at conflict with what my natal sex is. And one of the things that I worry about when I see these children who are being transitioned is that even though if they have puberty blockers, even though they won't develop the secondary sex characteristics that will make them as recognizable as members of their natal sex, they will still nevertheless always be the sex that they were born as. And I think as it, when they're in puberty, as they're going through adolescence, as they have supportive family members around them, as their social um, uh, networks, social support systems around them are very affirming of their identity, I think that they'll feel okay. And as they start to get past adolescence and start getting that period of their life where they're uh, really working on trying to um, understand their place in the world and and see themselves as, as more adults, that they're going to be trying to understand what happened to them. And, and my biggest fear is that 
for a lot of these individuals who are transitioned, uh, especially uh, prepubescently, that they're going to reach adulthood and they're going to ask, why did this happen to me? Like, why am I so different from other people? And why, why did my parents choose this for me? And it's not going to be all of the kids who feel this way, but I know that some of them are going to feel completely disconnected and uh, that they, they won't feel like they would have had any agency in the decision to have them transitioned. And I, I really worry that that's going to create a lot of angst for them. Um, I, I hope that there's people who are anticipating those needs, um, even if it's even if it's a minority of them, I know that there are going to be individuals who, for whom it's going to be very difficult to understand why they were transitioned as children. Corinna, I usually start these discussions when I've talked about this by saying I completely understand that <clears throat> this dysphoria is a real thing. And I think most people can understand that if you get older, and you, you're not in the prime shape that you were when you're younger. Some of us look at our bodies and we're like, what the hell happened to me? And we don't like what we see. And we don't like certain aspects necessarily of the aging process. So I can't imagine someone not liking their bodies when they're young and say, okay, I don't have to be like this, though. But as you point out, I think that this is a decision... There should be a lot more to this decision than today, that this is a decision that's going to affect the rest of your life, and people should not make the decision to do this in a very narrow context. Would you, am, I, am I reading you right here? You have to really understand the risks of making the choice. And when I see that some of the providers out there are working on a model that you could describe as informed consent, which if, if I can tell you, do you if, if, can I explain what informed consent is briefly? Yes, in, yes, in briefly, yes, please. So what it means is that if you wanted to go into a provider and say, um, I, I think I'd rather have testosterone, I think I want to transition and, and become a boy or become a man, then the provider would hand you a sheet of paper that explains on the paper what the risks are and would ask you to sign it. And if you signed it, then the provider would prescribe you the hormone. So depending on how uh, careful that provider is, they might walk through all of the risks and ask you, do you understand them? Or they might just hand you the paper and say, uh, sign this and fill this out before we can give you anything. But really what informed consent is supposed to be, and this is even consistent with the standards of care that are supposed to be applied for trans medicine, um, informed consent means that the provider, whoever is providing the, the medication or whoever is doing the surgery, has, that person has to really understand and believe that their patient understands the risks, that they've talked about it, and that the patient understands what they're getting into. It can't just be a perfunctory signature on a piece of paper. But I fear, based on the stories that I've heard from uh, friends who have gone to some of these clinics and uh, some of whom have desisted, that there's not really a, a good vetting process to make sure that people who are getting uh, these surgeries or, or having uh, hormones 
but they're going in with a very clear understanding of what the risk is and that, um, that there's not really any sort of qualification to know that these procedures are the things that are going to necessarily provide benefit for the person seeking them. Corinna, our time is up, but thank you. I, you have a lot of courage, and, and I salute your courage and your clarity of thought and your speaking out about your own experiences. I don't know what it took to do it, but it must have taken a lot. And so, and I really thank you for joining us today and helping to try to shed some light on a story that many of us are still seeking to understand. Thank you so much. Thank you. James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Sterling, with you here on WABC, coming back again. Anything you want to comment on, I'm going to talk a little bit about Elon Musk and what's going on with this poison pill business. But whatever's on your mind, feel free. 800-848-WABC. Remember, Cats at Night up next. We're coming back right after this. I have to tell you, I was just driving through the hood in Bushwick, and I'm on Fulton Avenue, right off Pennsylvania Avenue. I see this huge sign, black and white, Black Lives Matter, only when dollar signs are the motivation. Whoa. Whoa. I was shocked. And, and Bo, I stopped, and I pointed to the sign, and this woman of color comes up. That's right. She says, it's all a, it's all a, a fraud. She yells at oh, me. And she M- came over and gave me a big high five. Wow. You know, I think that this mansion story has done a lot to open people's eyes about what they thought was a movement that was supposed to benefit uh, people. There's an article in Daily Mail today by Kira Davis from Red State who was called a black voice for white supremacy because she said at the very beginning, like many of us did, we're warning people, hey, you better, there better be some tough accountability with this money. Otherwise, it is going to be squandered. It has been now, and I think there are a whole lot of people, Mike, if, if what you experienced today, that's amazing. And I think a lot of people's eyes have been opened to what a fraud BLM has become, or what they always were. Thank you so much. Let's go to the Jersey Shore. Duke, welcome, Duke. WABC Talk Radio 77, you're here with James Gold. Remember, Cats at Night comes up next. What? Hi, Duke. I caught that interview, and coming from her perspective, it was amazing, and I learned a lot, and I hope a lot of people heard that. Because down the road, a lot of these people are going to be in trouble, these kids. And I just say it was eye-opening. I I don't have anything else to add. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Duke. You know, that's one of the things that hit me when I read the article in the Washington Post. Number one, there's a perspective that is not common in this debate. This is not part of the narrative. The narrative that's being presented by the mainstream press about all of these children and all of these uh, other people that are going through this quote-unquote gender reassignment, is that, okay, everything's tickety-boo, they had the surgery, dun-dun-dun, tickety-boo, life is going to be wonderful, and they live happily ever after. Well, no. People don't live happily ever after. And people have a life that still has lots of challenges after this. And so for children that are not minors to be forced into this, by their own decisions that are immature, and then by their parents, which to me I still can't understand. I think that what Corinna Cohn had the courage to say in her article and with us today is there needs to be a lot more thought 
given to these decisions, given the long-term ramifications. And I thought I was interested in hearing what she had to say, too, and I've learned a lot over the past few days, first by reading her article and now by, by actually speaking with her. So that was pretty amazing. Thank you so much. Mark, Staten Island, WABC, Talk Radio 77. How are you, Mark? Good. Happy Easter. Thank you. Um, I have a theory as to why Mr. Biden is slow walking aid to the Ukrainians. Why is that? And that is that uh, he's hoping enough potential witnesses and evidence get destroyed uh, relating to his, his business dealings. <laughs> so self, self-interest is at the bottom of everything, eh? Yeah. You remember when the Murrah building was bombed? You know what was in there? Records pertaining to Whitewater. How convenient. Oh, how convenient was that? I do remember that. We're not supposed to think about those things. We're not supposed to talk about the Arkansas, or we're not supposed to talk about what happened with Rose Law Firm or any of those years. And man, oh, man, there was so much during the Clinton years. But I love your point. Thank you so much for for making Speaking of the Ukraine, by the way, there is growing uh, tension that Vladimir Putin will use nuclear weapons. And I keep saying to myself, I hope this man is not that stupid. Because there's no way that nuclear weapons will ever, ever, ever be forgiven by the world if they are used in this instance. And it shouldn't be. I also hope that Vlad has to one day face accountability in a courtroom somewhere for the war crimes, the blatant war crimes that are being committed in the Ukraine. Before I get out of here, I want to uh, wish one of my, my dearest friends and partners, Lisa Kathy, a happy birthday. The Kathy family's going through a lot this year. Happy birthday, Lisa. Appreciate that. Um, there is a story in the Washington Post today about Democrats that are in revolt. And this has to do with something we've been talking about all weeks, also something that you can find in our podcast on the border, that is over this Biden decision that they're going to eliminate the Trump era rule uh, with regard to uh, the virus, the coronavirus, this Title 42 rule. And people are already anticipating the chaos that is already beginning to surge at the borders that, is going to, that are going to get worse. It says in um, the Amazon Prime that President Biden is now facing a growing mutiny, a mutiny from Democrat candidates, including five vulnerable senators, all questioning his decision-making process. Now, last night, I saw a video of, of President Biden that was truly sad. He finished a speech, and many of you have, made, have seen this video, I'm sure. He turns with an outstretched hand as if he's getting ready to shake someone's hand. The only problem was there was no one there. He is shaking the hands of someone that at least is invisible to the rest of us. It was scary to look at. Clearly, clearly. Look, I'm not a doctor. I've never pretended to be a doctor. And I don't usually like to talk about medical things like this. But first of all, Joe's not the only one. There is a move underfoot 
to get rid of Senator Dianne Feinstein out of California because, quote-unquote, she has lost her cognitive skills. Well, clearly, what people have been saying about Biden, Joe Biden's cognitive skills, it is out in the open. There is no way you can hide that. So I don't know what happens from here. The Democrats will not get rid of him because who have they got waiting in the wings but Kamala, and they understand what a disaster she is. But it was pretty. UTIs are the worst. I've been there. One year, I had eight UTIs. If you get UTIs, then you understand how awful the cycle can be. I was taking all the precautions. And cranberry products, they just never worked for me. I was desperate for a way to be proactive. It was hard on me and on my husband. It was tough to see her in pain, and I wanted to help. I'm Jenna. And I'm Spencer. With Spencer's background in biochemistry. And our shared frustration when it came to UTIs, we were inspired to start Ucora. At Ucora, we make innovative urinary tract supplements and UTI relief products. Our effective urinary tract supplements finally give you a way to be proactive. Feel like you've tried everything? We get it. We have a money-back guarantee so you can try risk-free. If you're not happy, you'll get a full refund. We're on a mission to help women get their lives back. Ready to join them? Go to Ucora.com today. Ucora.com.